I'm now in my 30th year working to restore nature in forests and on farms, mostly across the north of England. 30 years ago I left the city and my old job behind. I hung up my suit and tie and went off to plant trees. It's a decision I've never regretted. I'm Pete Leeson. Welcome to Series 2 of Tree Amble Podcast. This is a podcast about people and farming and trees and nature and how we could all do much better. Welcome back to Triangle Podcast. Today we're going to go and see Ruth Dalton in South Cumbria. Ruth and Wall have an amazing small farm. It's craggy, it's treed, it's got goats and sheep and cattle. They're managing it for wildlife with animals. And Ruth is a very strong advocate for nature-friendly farming. And she wears multiple hats. Uh, one of her hats is working with Pasture for Life. And if you were Listening to Series 1, you'd have heard the interview with Fidelity Western of Pasture for Life. All these things are interlinked. Lots of these people know each other and have worked together. We had a great walk around with Ruth, and I really hope you enjoy this interview about nature and farming in South Cumbria. I've just come to a patch of joy in the South Lakes and I'm meeting Ruth Dalton. Hello, Ruth. Hi, Pete. A patch of joy. Uh, it's it... just started raining again, by the way. <laughs> well, OK. <laughs> We've had several days of beautiful sunshine and Pete arrives and it starts raining. But it, it is... I mean, I, we can hear some hens in the background and almost nothing else. It's just a... No. Yeah. The rain on the barn roof, maybe. Yeah, it's... Uh... Yeah, it's gentle. a lovely place. It's, it's a, a lovely, lovely place. We love it, yeah. And, it, yeah. and you're here with Wall. With Wall, my, my husband, yes. And you're farming, do you say 60 acres? So 60 acres at home yeah. that we own, and then about another 140-ish on grazing agreements away from the holding. So that's all with the cattle. Right. So our main thing is Shetland cattle, yeah. native breed cattle, suckler herd. Uh, we do sell a bit for beef, which we can talk about later. Yeah. Um, we have a few sheep which we quite often deliberate, but they have a, they have a role on yeah, the farm, okay. land management role, and a few goats, which is probably the most unusual thing, but they are linked to the trees okay. and the scrub, so something that we can talk about. And there's, on this farm, there's lots of trees and scrub, which yes. is one of the joys for me. Um, just what do you mean by suckler herd? So that is where you have the female cows that have calves and they stay with the mums until they're weaned at seven or eight months old, yeah. um, as opposed to a dairy herd where you're milking the cow and the calf gets reared on either artificial milk or milk that's fed to them by humans. So okay. suckler herd is usually a beef herd uh, as opposed to a dairy herd. So they'll be going for beef ultimately. Or breeding stock. Or breeding so, stock. So because we're pedigree, um, we do sell quite a lot of females to other breeders for breeding. Right. And cattle really are your thing. I know you've got sheep and goats, but they are. But totally they are. my thing, yeah. yeah. And that's what I you're know. known for, isn't it? I, I, I don't know, I guess so. I think yeah, so. I guess yeah. so. But, but I'm you... on the sheep committee for Westman Show, so they didn't get the memo about the cattle, but, you know, 
<laughs> I like being on the sheep committee too. I do like sheep. I do like sheep. They just, they're more problematic if you care about your grassland diversity. They're just right. a more difficult animal to manage, but they have definitely got a role in scrub management and they taste amazing. Mm. Okay, well, I'm a vegetarian, so I'll, I'll, I know pa- you I'll pass. Are, but on I will one. keep bringing up meat because, you know, it's a very important <laughs> Lots of part other people have as well. Of managing this kind of landscape is producing meat from it. So, so and we've already opened up some ideas to, to talk about, really, but, but actually, you bought this land because it was, it was actually quite difficult ground to manage in the system that the farm was managing. Previously. Yeah, we did, we did. So um, it was actually Wal, my partner, who bought the, the original bit of land, the 28 acres, um, with a lovely chap called Alan Shepley, who people from South Cumbria might be aware of. Yeah. He's sadly died now, but right. he was a forester, a woodsman, and he was really into his trees. So yeah. we, did you know Alan? Um, I think I Alan. did, yeah. yeah he I edited think I did the Cumbria Wildlife Trust magazine yeah, for a while. Yeah. So Alan and Wal kept seeing each other at the same land auctions, and they said, we're not getting anywhere uh, individually. Let's buy a bigger lump of land between us and split it after the sale. So this was a 70-acre block, right? and they split it between them. Wal got 28 acres, and Alan had the rest. And then we got together, we farmed it, sheep and cattle, and we added to it over the years. And then sadly, Alan died, and we bought some of the land back. And so we've now got 60 acres mm. of the original 70 okay. acres back right. together again, right. which is really nice. And it's nolly, rocky, yeah. it's steep, it's yeah. got... I mean, it's, for me, it's, it's aesthetically extremely pleasing. It's got, it's got everything on here. Yeah. And we're just looking out onto, onto a pasture with some gnatweed in it and you know, lots, of, lots of buttercups and, yeah. and hawk bits and things like that. Yeah, but it's also got trees. Clearly, you've been planting as well. But it obviously had the scrub that was here, the hawthorn and the, and the gorse and things like that. Yeah. So it's a real hodgepodge. It is. And I have to say, it was... It was a lot of bracken when we right, bought okay. it. Yeah. So sadly, because of the... That's what you were alluding to, really. Because it was so brackeny and a lot of gorse on it, a typical kind of low-fell allotment for around here, really. Yeah. Single block, there was one fence on the whole place, um, and it was very difficult to gather. So our neighbours who sold it to us, who are brilliant neighbours, still our yeah. neighbours now, um, they were just finding it a problematic bit of land to farm. And, of course, that meant it was problematic for us to farm as well right. because there was water in one place down the bottom. Yeah. And we couldn't subdivide the pastures apart from the electric fence. We had all this bracken to deal with. And so one of the first things that really changed how we could farm it was trees. Yeah. Because we went into a woodland improvement grant scheme in, oh my goodness, maybe 2011. Right. And so that enabled us to fence woodland blocks and wall spent weeks scratching his head over maps and if you see our fences on a map they make no sense whatsoever they look really weird like funny little strips of woodland and and weird shapes and it's because we were looking at the topography and following the contours and where the existing degraded ancient semi-natural woodland was and making those areas into woodland and that meant we were left with little pastures surrounded by woodland Mm. which has worked brilliantly for us and we got, uh, we made a hydraulic ram pump for the beck in the yeah. end field. Yeah. So we pump up to two big tanks at the top and then we could get troughs in all the fields as well. So being able to get assistance with the cost of the fencing, which is something we never could have done, having mm. just bought this land and you know, mm. not having loads of money to throw at it, that then enabled us to manage the grazing and then see the bracken back to the edges and the trees started growing up in the woodland, so they were shading the bracken out. So it all just 
became a much easier proposition after a lot of years of yeah. hard work. Hard work and deliberation. <laughs> yeah. It stopped raining, yeah, so, so let's, let's just go out for a wander, because wandering is what we wanted to do. Shut the barn. Um, hydraulic ram pumps are great fun, aren't they? They are. <clears throat> they're magic. They're, they're one of my favourite things. And they are almost magic, aren't they? Because it's... It, what's the power? There's a ratio of... Yeah, you either need head or flow. Yep. And that goes down a pipe into... Is it all right to go past the quite noisy goose? Absolutely, yeah. OK, he's not ours. He's here as a safe house from attacking mink. All right. That's quite a character. So, yes... He's you very characterful. He is. Hello. <laughs> Hello. He's, he's also quite a good early warning system. <laughs> Someone's arriving. He's a doorbell. Right. <clears throat> uh, yep, yeah, so you need head or flow. Yep. Goes into a pipe and then hits a series of valves, one-way valves, and most of the water comes out, and a little bit of the water gets pushed through into a pressure chamber, which then, in tablespoons worth for a size of rum pump that we've got, gets pushed up the hill. And you can push up the hill. You're right, it's something like four times as much as you coming down with our kind of yeah. ratio. So there's no electricity required, there's no solar, there's no messing about with batteries. It's purely the power of the water creating the, the lift. So it's low tech, but right? I mean it's it's an interesting bit of tech, but it's essentially low tech, isn't Very it? Because it's not tech. it doesn't require energy. And you just buy the bits from a chandlery store, you know, you can just make it yourself. And when they wear out you just replace the bit that's worn out. So yeah. So you can, we're probably here, we're oh there's some ant old ant hills in here. Mm. We're walking through tall grass. Yeah. But the stock's clearly been in here. Yes. So this was grazed in May by cows and calves and you can see which I'm really happy about some red clover some plantain yep. this hasn't been reseeded in a conventional way so the red the red clover this is nitrogen fixing yep the plantain has is that is that has that got some sort of worming it has and it's very high in protein as well it's like rocket fuel right okay and it makes me really happy now when I go and see kind of herbal lays that people are proudly planting and they're excited about their plantain I'm like yep that's what you'd find in an old pasture that hasn't been messed about with. But actually, we have brought this in by feeding species-rich hay okay. to our young stock in winter. So over the years, uh, we carefully feed species-rich hay. And so the seed drops out, the cattle trample it, and they eat the hay. And then you magically see lovely little plants that you want in this diversity So this, this is, comes back to you, for me as a conservationist... We have so modified our landscape. Yeah. Most of the fields that, we would, that we'd be looking round at are bright green because too much fertility, too much fertiliser, and single species, often ryegrass. Yeah. We've moved away from these natural nitrogen fixes, the natural proteins, the natural anthelmintic plants. And then what we've we done? We've replaced those with... Yeah, inputs. Inputs. Yeah, but I mean, no, that's because that's what everybody was told they should be doing. Yeah. It wasn't because people wanted to do that. And I often think about this at the moment when we're sort of saying, you know, DEFRA's paying for herbal lays and, and gradually people are really getting their heads around the power of clover. You know, this country, before artificial fertiliser, used to buy thousands of tonnes of clover seed every yep. year. People knew clover was the magic ingredient. And it was the pressures of corporations that mm. meant that farmers thought... Oh, why should I be faffing about sowing seed that might fail because we have a droughty spring when I could just buy this magic stuff in a bag from mm. this nice man that's come to the farm gate? You know, people were kind of duped into the inputs thing. And the inputs were subsidised and the inputs were cheap. And so you then had a couple of generations where 
you know, that became the norm. And now we're sort of chatting to people and sort of trying to show there's a different way. But what must those farmers have thought when the fertiliser came along? Yeah. But there was loads of them going, but I love my, I love <laughs> my field. I like my pasture as it is. The stock love it. It's palatable. Why do I, why should I replace it with ryegrass? There must have been a mindset change the other way. Of course. Yeah. When there was all yeah. those input. Why should I spend money on something that I can grow for free? You know, so it was a, it was a big con, wasn't it? Really? What a massive con. Yeah. <laughs> this actually cost us dearly. Yeah. I think partly because of the skills we've lost as well. You know, those the sort of we talk to a lot of people and those those land husbandry skills. I suppose they've been replaced with other ones really, but but knowing what's on your land has been lost, hasn't it? I think. Um, I don't I yeah, I'd dispute that a little bit. I think you know, all, all my farming neighbours and farmers I know, you know, there's not a single one of them that doesn't get excited that they've seen the barn owl day before or, right. you know, that um, I was this morning on a farm and found a feather and I was like, I think that could be a woodcock feather. And the farmer's like, oh, there's loads of woodcocks here. We've got partridge. And, you know, I think it's such a skilled job being a farmer that we haven't lost those skills. It's just that there's kind of elements of them that go up and down aren't there but right, okay. you know still massively skilled job with people who are very very observant the most observant people you'll meet farmers um and they generally do know what's going on in their land and what wildlife's on their land so. and this is this is really quite deep some of this yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're going into um so we've never been in a scheme here we've never um got payment from so an agri, agri, agri environment scheme, scheme which is yeah. the sort of fundamental uh, that's the sort of route to, to income, I suppose, for a lot of farmers, isn't it, schemes? Well, we've had BPS, so we have basic payment schemes, so yeah. that was the route to income for a lot of farmers. Right, yeah. So the stewardship in its various guises over the years has been kind of a, an additional to that. And now we're losing that basic payment, and so schemes are becoming a more attractive proposition for a lot of people. But the reason we never went in a scheme was because we found them too restrictive, and um, my husband Wall's kind of whole thing is wildlife he works for yeah, wildlife yeah, trust yeah and he wanted to manage it his own way and not do it under definite restriction but we have gone into a scheme this year and this is all going to become something called wood pasture okay yeah so it already has a bit of a kind of wood pasture feel especially the field we're just about to go into um but we're going to add more trees exactly right what pete spends every day <laughs> well, doing. i spend a lot of time doing <laughs> yeah, this yeah, yeah. yeah um yeah but you know more trees we're very good for scrub on a lot of our fields, but the fields without as much scrub will add a little bit in. We kind of had, had to de-wild this farm a little bit. It would be wall-to-wall scrub yeah. if we let it. So we're at the opposite end of the spectrum from a lot of farmers. But but you'd have... I mean, this this is where it becomes very nuanced. I mean, what you were fighting against was bracken, wasn't it? And gorse. And gorse. OK. Yeah. So those two things will march yeah, absolutely. across the landscape. And bramble. Yeah. So you're fighting against those, but what you brought back isn't isn't unwild. It's just it's just it's it's flora. I can I'm looking up at yarrow, at betony, at hawkbits and plantains yeah. and tall grasses and you know. So Yeah, we're really excited about all that. Yeah. And we would absolutely not want to have no scrub. Yeah. You know, we recognise that the reason we've got so many more birds here is because we've created woodland and most importantly woodland edge. Yeah. So it's that edge that supports all those creatures. And I think, you know, that's what scrub does so well. I was really excited with another yeah. work hat that I wear. Have I told you my scrub factoid? No, tell me. Oh, tell my me. God, I'm so excited. I've told everybody. I thought, <laughs> I thought I must have told you already. Um, so when they looked at different habitats and how many 
priority species they support. The, the habitat out of all of these priority habitats and non-priority habitats that supported the most species was scrub, which isn't even a priority habitat and it's not protected in any way. So scrub supports more biodiversity officially from Natural England than anything when, else. When was that? When, when was that? Last so, year. Last year. So I've been planting scrub. I've been mean, worked with some fantastic people at Natural England and yeah. lots of commons and some fantastic commoners to put scrub in. And well, I know in Cumbria, Pete, like the only reason the Woodland Trust has got such a good reputation is because you've gone around pushing hedges, infield trees, scrub in the right place where people can cope with it. Yeah. You haven't gone around going oh, I'm going to turn this whole productive field into a woodland, you know. So you've done, you've been way ahead of the game and the Natural England figures just back up what you've known for ages, really. Well, that's great. So you can give me <laughs> that you. 20 quid now. <laughs> I'll give you 20 quid. But, oh, um, you know, we know, we know, and I, you know, I've said, said this before in this podcast, actually, that places like T-Bay... Yep. Where we've been monitoring the birds, we now know... Just how many birds have come back that that, oh, that scrubs yeah. there? Yeah, yeah. So we've gone from four species a decade ago to thirteen breeding species, Fantastic. which is brilliant. That's so good, and it's so good to do that monitoring, isn't it? Well, monitoring is absolutely critical because then it? you can prove the worth of the work and the money, and show that they're actually delivering. So yeah, we don't do enough monitoring. I mean, we're guilty of it as well. You just you live somewhere and you see it every day, and you know it changes, but you're not there going. Yeah. Well, five years ago, we didn't have the yellow hammer back, you know. So. But I've talked to a lot of clients and I've said, look, do you, do you remember what it looked like last year? Oh, well, well, what do you think about this year and what about next year? Can you not just do some photography? Yes, fixed point photography. Fixed point photography. Yeah. Just, just take photographs of bits, yeah. of, bits of pasture or yeah. whatever. Because um, you don't need to have a species list. It's nice to have that. But what you need to know is the direction of travel. Yeah, picture paints a thousand words. So I can hear birds in the background, but what we've come up into... And I'm puffing a bit because that's quite steep. Yes, there's very little flat ground <laughs> on this farm. Is a pasture I can best describe as nolly, with exposed rock, some lovely lush green grass, bits where the soil's obviously quite thin and you've got harebell, hawk bits, you've got betony. Um, and then protruding out of these fissured rocks are these big trees, so ash and oak in particular... Um, it's ash and oak, isn't it, actually? Yeah, predominantly oak. There's a crab yep. apple down there. Um, and this is the wood pasture. Yeah. Now, you've got a particular thing for cows. Just describe the relationship between trees and cows that makes your system work. So... It's also to do with grazing management. So you could have cows and have very few trees. But when we purchased this bit of land about five years after the original bit, it was nice, but there weren't many flowers and there's certainly no natural regen. And there was these beautiful trees that you were mm. just describing. And, you know, they're growing unfeasibly out of what looks like bedrock. You know, they these really, are they really big are. oak trees they and really they're just are. kind yep. of sprouting out of rocks. And it is, it is a stunning place. Um, but we thought there's, there's no younger trees and we'd just like to see a bit more flora in the sward as well. But we noticed these thin soil banks, like the one we're standing on, mm. did have some encouraging signs. So, so Wall and I always have a bit of a battle because I'm always going to be focusing a little bit more on the cattle 
and he's going to be focusing slightly more on the flowers. So it would get so to... So we have this, uh, the allotment at home. Mm. So I, I push the flowers and pushes the veg. The vegetables. So you're in the same, you know exactly where <laughs> yeah, exactly. we're coming from. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're just like, yeah. well... So we would get to kind of July and August, normal year when the cows are at home. The cattle sadly are not here because they're on some grazing the other side of the village. Right. But um, And I would be wanting to graze this bit of land, which wouldn't have been grazed since March. So we'd get to August, July, August, and I'd go, well can we put the cattle up the top yet? And he's like, no, no, there's things flowering, there's things flowering, we can't. And this, this was just getting really irritating. So we did a pretty silly thing, which we spent a few hours electric fencing off the nicest, most <laughs> species-rich banks, which is a bit bonkers, but it meant the cattle had all the boring stuff to go at. We didn't graze the flowering plants until they'd set seed, and usually not until later on in the winter when it would all get grazed off. And as a result, we've seen loads of natural regeneration of trees coming back. Cattle, I, I honestly believe cattle are creatures of woodland and clearings and woodland edge. You know, they roamed around as aurochs thousands and thousands of years ago. And, and they love trees. They love to be under a tree. They'll eat more if they don't overheat. You know, they, they eat trees. They love eating tree leaves. And if they're given the chance and they were here, they'd be hoovering up all those fallen ash, all those ash leaves. leaves. It's so yeah. palatable. They're high in minerals. They give them lots of stuff that they need. And, you know, they, they won't damage young trees in winter like a sheep might nibble off a young oak seedling over the winter for the mineral content in the bark and cattle will probably ignore it you mm. know they might eat the odd one by mistake so their hooves create seeding opportunities for the for the tree seeds as well so they just are very complementary to each other mm. i think trees and cows and there's lots of conversations now about their nutrient benefits for the animal yeah. so the welfare nutrients yeah. and then of course then the nutrient benefits when you eat the meat at the other end absolutely yeah they've shown that meat that's been reared on diverse pasture um, i don't know if they specifically looked at tree leaves but they maybe have but certainly that is better for you in terms of the sorts of things we associate mm. with oily fish mm -hmm. so omega-3 fatty acids well you know frankly you're better off eating pasture-fed meat than buying some fish that's maybe been overfished and accumulated mm. a load of heavy metal toxins in it so there's a, there's a big narrative around nutrition and nutritional density of food and how the food that humans are designed to eat in terms of meat, when you think back to when we were hunter-gatherers, is probably game. You know, mm. it would have effectively been game, which is gamey because it eats a huge variety of different yeah. wild foods itself. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what you're replicating by rearing cattle in a very low-input, extensive system um, where they have access to lots of different plants. So this system works for you, for the animals, for nature? Yeah, yeah. well, I think it does. I mean, we're always, we always get things wrong, you know, everybody yeah, yeah. does. You yeah, have every year, yeah. you go, oh, gosh, right, you know, we won't do that again. But, yeah, it's evolved over the time. We used to take on lots of little bits of ground and graze them, and now we've kind of concentrated our efforts on a few larger sort of reserves of land. They are privately owned, mm. they're not nature mm. reserves mm. belonging to any organisation, but... They generally belong to people who are very interested in the wildlife mm -hmm. on their land. Mm. And so it feels really good for us to work with those people to provide benefits in terms of wildlife and our cattle do well on that land. Mm. And it's a kind of positive feedback. Um, and I would say that all those people at Grace for are now friends. Um, so that's been a, another lovely thing about it. So it might not be economically brilliant, but it's certainly very satisfying. And, and I mean, we've talked to 
this with a lot of people who are doing whether you call it regenerative grazing or however you whatever phrase you put around this is just how much joy they get out of those a the farming style but also the friendships they've made yeah with yeah. other people who can see the benefits as well absolutely yeah we've certainly found that over the years and you know some unexpected connections get made i think almost all the land we've ended up grazing has been word of mouth um and you know funny little things like we've got a breed of cattle which slightly unfortunately for the breed they all look slightly different Shetland <laughs> cattle come in lots of different okay, colors yeah so you'll get black and white ones you'll get red and white ones you'll get gray ones and brindle ones and to the casual passerby probably looks like a, a herd of crossbred cattle wandering around in the, in the field but it means that the people that check our cattle most days who own this land know every single one of them apart. Right, OK. Because they're very easy to tell. Yeah. Whereas if I had a herd of Angus, which, you know, breed I absolutely love, they'd all be black. Right, OK. <laughs> so, you know, things we didn't really think about when we got, we got the Shetland cattle. And they're also, they're, they're a medium-sized animal. They're not tiny like a Dexter. Medium-sized. So, they don't make a mess in winter our cattle out winter all the time. I was going to ask you about that. So they're all, you don't house any of them? No. So you're managing your grazing in a way which allows you 365 access to, to ground? Yes. Yes, and that's really important to us. We don't have a building suitable for housing cattle and we both do work off the farm in kind of related fields, but it's important to us that the cattle in winter isn't a huge drain both in inputs or time um, and I think that's a big issue with sort of the sales pitch for cattle really because when I look at the economics of cattle for most farms in wintering cattle is very expensive in terms of bedding time machinery so there's some innovative work going on at the moment with something called bale grazing. Have you come across that? Piece? Do I have? Yeah, Renault's yeah. doing it. And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, we've seen it. Yeah. So I think that's a really good halfway house that could be adopted by quite a few. So other farms. people have called it living barns, I think. Right. Yeah. So when you so the idea is you you move the bales out when you've cut them, you bale them by the grass and you push it out to the field and you leave them stacked up in the field and then you have access to each of those bales every yeah. day or every other day. That's it. So they, they, um, it's a bit of a sacrificial field in the end, yeah. probably. Because it gets quite it, mucky, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But because there's a lot of organic matter, people would say, you know, conventional... People who have not encountered bale grazing might think, God, they're going to waste loads of that mm. bale. Mm. You know, they're just going to trample it in. It's a complete waste. They do trample some of it, but actually that's all organic matter mm. going back in. And almost invariably you'll get these brilliant photographs people will show you of... A horrendous field at the end of winter and then four or five months later it's beautifully green and growing with all these different mm. species so especially if you're using a species rich bale of hay like i was saying before yeah, yeah, yeah. then you're also putting seed in so just just kind of altering the grazing as well if you can grow a really good stockpile of grass in the growing season it does not poach up it does not get as muddy and mucky as quickly as if you've grazed it all summer mm. and that's not just because they obviously take longer to eat it it's because the amount of root you can see the amount of plant you can see above the surface is about equal to the amount of root underneath as i'm sure you well know it's like a tree isn't it mm. um so if you've got a you know two foot of grass you've got two foot of root which is this big supportive mat holding the, the hooves of the animals when they're walking around in winter and 
we certainly find very little, if any, poaching on any of the sites yeah. we graze. We just don't get it poached. But that route opens air rates. Yeah, lets water infiltrate. Yeah. It's not sitting on the surface. There's just so many benefits. And you're armouring the surface of the soil a wee bit with some of that grass you're trampling as well. Yeah, you? yeah, so, certainly are. So yeah. it changes the yeah. temperature dynamics at the surface of the soil. Yeah, and enables faster growth in the spring as well because yeah. it's got that little kind of thatch protecting it from the frost. So, yeah. So oh. we've come to the top of the hill, and actually, um, I can. I, I, I can almost imagine you bringing your deck chairs up here with a glass of wine because <laughs> this is a 360 view of, well, down to Morecambe Bay, I suppose, is yep. it? Yeah, it's a bit hazy today, isn't it? But it you is. can just see the sea. You can see the sea. Yeah. And then we've got the limestone scarps over here with all of the ancient woodland and things around them, which is heading towards Kendall direction, I suppose. Yeah, Kendall's just Kendall's over, over that there. hill. Howgills. Out to the Howgills. Yeah. We've done lots of work in the Howgills. And then, and then north, into the central lakes. Into the central lakes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's a good spot. It we is. Did, uh, the only time we've done that, Pete, though, is actually the, the day the sail went through. We did bring a bottle of champagne. <laughs> but we should do it more often, you're right. And actually, that fringe of trees around us is, is definitely there. But I can see why, you moving forward, you might want to bring in another generation. Because yeah, they're very, all of an age, aren't Very they? typical of this landscape. And actually, it is a landscape with lots of big, old trees. We've got lots of ash. That could suffer from ash dieback ultimately, and some of it is, so it can get a bit thin. It's like a like an ageing man with baldness. <laughs> um, and then we've got bits of scrub, but there's a lot of oak woodlands in there, and, and oaks within pastures. Yes. Um, but very few youngsters. And I think this is, you know, given that half of our tree canopy is not in a wood, it's yeah. actually non-woodland, then losing individual trees out of here then really restricts the ability for birds and uh, birds, bats, bees, all sorts of things to move through the landscape. To travel. And we were really hammered in um, Storm Arwen. Right. So there was a sort of, I think there must have been a mini tornado kind of did a track from Stavely through here. And we lost some, you can see I them can see laid, some, yeah, you know, some here. carcasses laid and down. I'll, if we've got time, I'll take you down the bottom to a beautiful, healthy, really healthy, probably 600-year-old oak. And right. it was, it was just awful that it came yeah. down you know it's just because the wind direction was from a different place so yeah we need to have the younger trees coming through and replacing that and, and just providing a few more infield trees in places where they want to grow because these guys have only survived because they're growing in some obscure rock crevice and presumably didn't get eaten by a sheep or a deer or something whereas it'd be nice to have some open grown trees and some better ground really well i'd 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 really like to i mean i think landscape history or reading landscapes is something i'm really interested in but in the sense of not from a nerdy perspective, but just when you see a clutch of even-aged trees on a farm, mm. you just wonder... What happened 100 years ago? What happened 100, 100 years and 10 days ago that actually allowed that crop to get away? What do you think it is? Well, I think I, think I could probably task... I, could, I think we can look at things like um, First World War, Second World yeah, War. Yeah, I wondered about First World where War. Where you've got... Yeah. You've maybe got whole families of boys, yeah, and it would have, been, would have been men, going off to war. Yeah. Um, and those fields aren't cut or they're not grazed as heavily. And you get a cohort of trees that gets away. And maybe maybe they don't come back. Maybe some of them come. Maybe they all come back. But mm. then they take up farming again. And that, But that cohort of trees got away. Um, or you could have somebody... You could have a, a death in the family and yeah. it takes two years to sort the probate out. Whatever it is, yeah. you can see how that might influence the landscape. Um, 
whatever it is, we mm. need to we need to put another generation in, don't we? We now. definitely do, and a bit more diversity as well. I think you know, so many wonderful native trees, aren't there? And most of them just survive in hedges. And it would be so lovely to have a bit, a few more of them, kind of in their full glory, out and about in the landscape. Well, I love I love lime, and and we certainly planted quite a lot of small leaf lime and the schemes recently, but. It's finding the right ground and putting things like willow and mm. alder and aspen and things like that. And I've seen some willow lower down. Yeah, so maybe we should go and see that because yeah. willow is a particularly interesting thing, isn't it? Yeah, for we've you got guys? loads of willow. It's one of the first things we planted. Ostensibly, really, as a bit of a, a potential crop as well. Right. So we've planted basket willows and biomass willow as something we thought might have quite a rapid turnaround and something that we could sell off the farm. And the thing we've sold the most is actually the, the biomass willow for people to either plant for their stock or to create screening, something like that. So, okay. Or for um, slow-the-flow-type projects. So that's been really interesting, using the willow. They've used the willow to create mini-dams or stabilise riverbanks, and it's also provided great screening for our agricultural building um, and, and just grows at a phenomenal rate and is so brilliant for invertebrates in the spring. You know, it's one of the first things to flower, isn't it? It's just covered in bees, mm. and you think... You're really giving them that head start in the spring and all the cover for the birds and everything. So, so do you know Phil Bradley? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, Phil was one when I came to Cumbria. He was one of the first people I met. Oh, really? Oh. And um, he played bass, and I played pretty ropey guitar at the time. <laughs> and we played a bit of folk music together. He's a nice man. I, well, Phil isn't he fantastic? Yeah. So he's 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 Mr. Willow, isn't he? He I is. Mean, I think I went on a course his years ago to make you know living willow structures and it was great i remember yeah. a very good lunch and baskets and things like that but he's got into willow weaving on on riverbanks has he right yeah yeah beautiful oak ah oh, that's stunning isn't it so I am, I'm going to take a photograph of some of these as we go down um, because um, I think describing these things coming out of the, of the rock is best accompanied with a photograph because that's literally coming out of the rock, isn't it? That is just phenomenal. Um, now, when asked these days, I say my favourite tree is aspen, and I'm stood under a lovely oak. And You're having a wobble, aren't you? I don't. Yeah, exactly. I am a wee bit. <laughs> well, it's stunning, isn't it? I mean, that's a, it's two hugs, probably that. So it's um, take two of us to hug it. Yeah. So it's of a certain age, isn't it? And probably older than you think, because it's grown so slowly. If it's it's quite exposed where it is, you know, the southwesterlies come whistling in from there and. And it's, it can't be getting much nutrition from such thin Well, soil, those roots must go... Well, they can see how they come right miles. Right down, yeah. But it's also got this fantastic wingspan, what's probably 20 metres this side. Yeah. Um, shade, a massive shade under there. The All cattle this... love it under here, yeah. Yeah. It's airy and it's shady. You get out of the flies. And all this leaf litter, which is going gonna, is gonna to sit on the surface for a while and then start to get taken down by the yeah. worms. Yeah. Well, I'll take you to see our amazing rowan then, if you yep. like your big old uh, trees. Oh, I do like my big old trees. I like aspen as well. They are a beautiful tree and you don't see them as much. We've got some, so you can see this woodland in the bottom there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Some of that is us and then the bit next door, our friends of ours bought 
Um, but the, this Alan Shapley, who I told you about before, who's oh, yeah. his woodlands, yeah. he planted all sorts of weird trees. So we've got a monkey puzzle. <laughs> oh, right, okay. And <laughs> kind of a weird red hazel. So it's a bit of a, a, an arboretum down there. And this is where I start to get a bit sniffy, I suppose, really. is I mean, I, I'm all for people putting in occasional things. Yeah. But it can get a bit weird. I know, I know. You know, and actually, what if we're talking about biodiversity, native is best. Um, how good is lime for bees, Pete? Oh, how good is it? Well, it's awesome. Is <laughs> um, it? Because I thought that, and then... I was at a farm last week um, where the, the landowner, who's in his late 80s now, has planted loads and loads of lime. And we were talking about lime. I'm just going to take you a little detour to see this ruin. Yep. Um, but when I looked them up, it suggested that the small leaf lime and the common lime, which I never realised was a hybrid, a so hybrid, that was a yeah. shocker, aren't as good for bees as some of the other limes, some of the kind of cultivar limes. Quite confused. I think. Well, I think. I think we should. We should always be confused because that means we ask the questions, isn't it? Um, That's why I'm asking you. Yeah. Well, I know. And actually, <laughs> uh, the other thing is, I'm. I'm not a great lover of sycamore, but my God, stick oh, stick yeah. your head into sycamore in the summer, and it's just buzzing. Isn't it's it? buzzing. Yeah. So I suspect what what. I don't know, and I think something. Somebody ought to ring me up and tell me because I'm going to say the wrong thing. But well, someone will um, message you. Won't yeah. They? So I I, th- I suspect what it is is there's specialists that maybe that we're not really so much picking up. And what we need is a nice variety of different things in the landscape. Oh, you can't see her in her full glory, but that is a massive ruin. That is phenomenal. Quite a lot of uh, woodlandy bracken in the way. But that's at least two hugs. It's a huge ruin. And, you know, this is one of the the things, isn't it? That ruin has got, it's got creases and cringles in its bark, it's got hollows, it's got dead bits. It's It's got some sort of rot going on. And that is where we get lots of inter- interest for it's insects. It's got wild bees. It's got honeybees living in it. Oh, okay, right. That's Fantastic. where our original bees came from. They oh, okay. swarmed out of that tree, and they must have a level of resistance to the varroa mite mm. that's so damaging to honeybees. Because obviously, we can't treat the tree for varroa. No. And yet, certainly for the past three or four years, it hasn't died out. It's um, it's survived the winter and done quite well. So, right. yeah, pretty phenomenal. I, I would love to know the history of that ruin because it's kind of multi-stemmed as well. Mm. So I presume it's been sort of nibbled off or coppiced or something. But yeah, lovely mm. one. But we'll go back. There's also a self-seeded chestnut in here, which really got me excited the other day. Um, unfortunately, your ash is looking like it's got dieback. A lot of ash dieback. So it's browning, lots of brown leaves, and doing that thing that ash does of sort of sprouting madly so in, case in response. They are where they are. This yep. is our cunning plan back right. in 2010, 11 or whatever when yep. we got the Woodland Improvement Grant was, oh, fence posts don't last five minutes anymore. Mm-hmm. So we'll be terribly clever and plant an ash tree on every other fence post so we've got something to hold the fence up for okay. a bit longer. <laughs> and right. then, of course, very shortly after Ash Digerbat came along and loads of them died. But we have, we have planted willow yep. and sweet chestnut, which does really well here. Um, as replacement kind of trees for the in-between yeah. posts. So it's, it's, it was a good idea, but it didn't really work There's out. There's a speckled wood butterfly just mobbing us as well. Um, yeah, so I don't know the answer on the lime. Um, someone will tell us, I'm sure. Yep, that'd be good. But what I would say is the different aid times of flowering, 
Of course, you need, you need flowering at different times all the way through the year because you have different emergence of bees or hoverflies or whatever it is. So we need some kind of nectar and pollen all the way through the season. And of course, all the trees have flowering at different times. So even if it's not the best of the best for bees... It's, it's there, isn't it? It's there, and it's yeah. part of that complex. So yeah. I would say that's probably one of the answers that you should give. Yeah, that's a good, that's um, a good answer. That's a good that answer. One. Yeah, let's go with Let's that. run with that one. So part of what you do, I mean, you farm, but you also... Um, I know the word consultant doesn't sit no, well with you, does I don't it? Like but that one, no. no I, mm. <laughs> so advisor. Advisor. That's slightly less kind of. Yeah, it still sounds it? a bit up our asses, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does. Yeah. What should we go with, Pete? You're a friend to farmers, aren't you? <laughs> so you help them out. <laughs> that sounds a bit, <laughs> a bit woo. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're a consultant, advisor, oh, whatever, no. whatever, whatever the right word yes. is. Yes, I just try and help people out. Yeah. And that's part of your job and you also work with Pasture for Life as well don't you yes, so just talk us network. through what you're doing on the on farmer network actually you have I've just seen a deer um, multiple Tom. multiple um, roles there responsibilities I've just I seen a, a deer that's too. not been seen by the dog yeah she's a good dog though <laughs> uh, I do so I really enjoy the work I do on a self-employed basis for both Pasture for Life as their Cumbria coordinator and for the Farmer Network running different projects for them. So it's just great to work with really passionate people who are embedded in the farming community, trying to do their best for farmers, helping farmers through transition that we're going through right now. So I get loads out of working for them and, and running farm events and just it's a different a different strand to what I do which I really value so. yeah we didn't plant this hazel as you no, can see the hazel is right part... in the gateway right. <laughs> <laughs> just gonna have to bend over oh, I'm in your shorts Pete I'm in my shorts well there we go no I, my my legs only ever benefit from scratches <laughs> if Mom, I don't if I don't home... supposed to clear this every year <laughs> but he's not been don't through. go home with a new scar I've, I, it's not a it's good not day not a good day no, no. So you can see these are the trees we planted. So we were talking up the top where they're all the single age and then suddenly we're in amongst trees that are only sort of 12, 13 years old. Yep. And you know, Scott's pine, it seems bizarre to me because you spend ages looking at young trees thinking, oh, you're just a twig in a tube. And then you kind of forget to look at them and suddenly they, they're massive. And I think it does feel like a young wood, doesn't mm. it? And that's not mm. that long. So anyone thinking of planting trees or when they've planted them and they're looking at them in the tubes and thinking oh I've done it for my kids you definitely haven't you're going to see those trees well, lump away well what I say to people is if you imagine that young tree is going to double in size every year for the first three or four years is that right gosh and I yeah. think they do so we planted all the last winter in tubes up in north of Cumbria and they went in tubes at 0.6 meters um, we've now got them at the top of the tube at 1.2 so that's doubled in height mm, olders are fast though, well if you they? imagine that doing that two or three times mm. you won't notice it for the first three or four years but year five yeah it's a tree all of a sudden it? and then because of the way that things coalesce in shape as well you put a tree next to a tree next to a tree and at year five year six suddenly you've got a wood yeah definitely it. so, so it does happen so really encouraging. quickly yeah um and these so we were talking about limes and here we are. Yeah, we've put quite a lot of small leaf lime in. And it, it kind of looks like it's a natural natural coppicing plant because it throws up these are multi-stems. Um, and the leaf is very much like a hazel leaf, isn't it? With that sort of 
very round, yeah, just thinner, isn't with it? A little, with a with a little pointy nipple at the end, and um, yeah. So I think people do often confuse them because the the multi-stemmed oh, and the yeah. same shaped leaf. People the think bark's a, really different, isn't it? Think they're a hazel until you actually get to it. And you go, oh, yeah, no, it's a, that's a leaf, that's a lime. Yeah, and we've planted some things like I mentioned before, the sweet chestnut, which would you know it's not really thought of as being native to the north of England, is it? But mm. it's. I guess with climate change and everything, it, it really is a tree I would recommend to anyone. It's a lovely, a lovely tree, and it seems to do well. Have in you seen Cumbria the now. Have you seen the sweet chestnut at Rydal Hall? No, is it massive? Go to Rydal Hall, yeah, and don't drive there. Get the bus. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to get There's people no out of their There's no bus to cars. our village. <laughs> no, that's true, actually. All right, Shanks' pony. Yeah, right, get it, your bike. It's, so it's just not far from, from, the, from the hall, and it's the squattest, fattest, most oh, amazing... Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's vast. Because um, it was stunted, you think, by the climate when it was younger? Well, possibly, but it's huge now. I mean, yeah. it goes up a long way, but right. it just... It, it's really fat. Did you know the Wamping Willow in... Um, yes. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's that kind of... It's, like it's absolutely <laughs> squat and fat. It's wonderful. Um, I can't begin to tell you how wide oh, it is, but it's probably it's probably eight meters across. Oh my god! Oh, it's vast, absolutely vast. So yes, they do grow in Cumbria, and it's you know it's probably naturalised. It's like many of our species, it was a non-native, but it's probably now been here long enough. And it's a lovely old holly. This is a lovely little wood, isn't it? So yeah. So you the, can tell it's not grazed. Yep. Because it's not spiky. So just run through that. So it, it costs plants energy to create their defence mechanisms like a toxin or something that makes them unpalatable. So with holly, it's the spiky edges of the leaves. It'll be the kind of energy cost to doing that. So if there's no browsing pressure on the holly, you'll get these leaves that have very, very few spikes on. So they're bright green, um, shiny. shiny, and no spikes, and it's a holly. Mm. Um, I mean, you should say, really, this is deer fence, doesn't it? It's deer So you haven't, haven't got deer browsing in here either? Well, we didn't until Storm Arwen. Oh, and right, I'll okay. show you where it went through okay. the deer fence. But that gave us at least 10 years mm. of no deer. Mm. And we would not have managed this without. Because mm. roe deer and red deer were both an issue here. And trees would get to... We tried planting trees before the deer fences. And the trees would get to the top of the tube and just get munched off. Right. So, yeah. But plant has... Learned it's not going to be nibbled. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? I mean, so, that whole holly. Yeah. yeah. No spininess. No spininess. It's learned it's not going to get nibbled, so it changes its its leaves. Yeah. And yeah, we think that plants aren't very bright. <laughs> <laughs> They're cleverer than you think. So I haven't really talked about the goats and their place in. No, I mean, in a sense, we haven't really even described your system very much either. So maybe, you know, in, in, a, in a sort of farming, non-farming way, what... Well, in fact, let's, let's wait to talk about it until we're through this bracken, which is now head height and scratchy. So you mentioned earlier, Ruth, that you've got, you've got Shetland cattle... You've got some sheep and you've got goats. Yeah. How do they all work together? Because you also touched on the fact that sheep aren't particularly good when it comes to wildflower meadows. Yeah, they're <laughs> fine for winter grazing. So um, how they fit together for our system is that we, we are majoring on the cattle. So the Shetland cattle is a breed that we've had for nearly 14 years and we're both pretty passionate about them. We want to have a breeding herd which is comprising 
productive, good conformation, nice temperament cows. So we're we're more interested, or have been much more interested in the breeding side than the meat side over mm-hmm. the years. So we've in the past we've sold off excess steers at weaning for other people to rear which has been nice actually because some people with a small acreage have bought a couple of steers like you would buy a couple of wiener pigs and then reared them for me sent them to the abattoir we're really lucky here we've got two abattoirs within 10 miles so we're incredibly lucky and i recognize that um and we've reared a couple for ourselves and friends and family um and the breeding stock has been the thing that's really got us going. And also we've expanded our holding almost every year over the years. Mm. So we were constantly needing more breeding stocks. So it took us quite a while to make mm. a profit. But then the year we first made a profit was the year our BPS payment didn't arrive. Oh, right. And I was so pleased with that. Not yeah. that the BPS payment didn't arrive, it did eventually. Yeah, yeah. But that we were profitable without subsidy right. on such a small farm and such a low input system it wasn't a massive profit but it was a profit and given that most beef and sheep farmers sadly are kind of borderline borderline, profitable without subsidy uh, we haven't managed that every year since either because we've expanded or we have costs or whatever but you know so the the cattle are our thing we use them to produce breeding stock that we can sell on privately to other breeders and recently we've been very lucky to partner with uh, butchers locally who want Shetland mm. beef mm-hmm. and they've uh, visited us quite a few times and they like what we do. So we've now started selling whole carcasses to them, which I have to say is absolutely brilliant from our point of view. So this is one of the problems I keep hearing back is it's all very well having an ordinary square cow from a known breed. Yeah. But you have an unusually shaped one with got more hair on it. Or horns. Or horns. Yeah. And all of a sudden it gets less at market. People yeah. don't want to buy it. Yeah, so quite understandably, you know, people going to an auction mark to buy want to buy something they know. Yeah. And round here, that'll be a limousine, limousine cross out of a dairy cow, Texel cross sheep, mules, all really good breeds that work really well in the north. Um, so if you have something that's a little bit different, maybe from a lower input system that maybe doesn't grow as quickly, uh, you won't get that kind of good price selling it uh, anonymously in Mm. in the auction so you need to find your own routes to market or somebody to help you Mm. find routes to market which is where organizations like pasture for life come in because they have a a kind of supply chain manager who will link up good butchers with people with good stock and they're you know provides them that alternative place to sell Mm. and we're lucky enough that this this high-end butcher who wants to send meat to posh restaurants likes our beef so you know that's been lovely for us as well because frankly we you know it's it's nearly three years on hoof it's nine months in its mum there's a lot of time and effort mm. and blood sweat and tears gone into that animal and i don't actually want it anonymously to end up in a pie in a supermarket because no. i want someone to go oh my god this is the best beef i've ever yeah. eaten yeah, yeah. which it probably will be because yeah. shetland beef is incredible and anyone who says that you can't produce marbling off grass-fed, pasture-fed animals has never seen my steaks because right. they are just marbled through, you right. know, and that's because partly because of breed. Um, so huge fan of dual-purpose breeds. They tend to marble more easily, as did dairy breeds. There's lots to go on that, but, you know, a vegetarian, so we're not too much. Um, <laughs> no, I, but as a vegetarian, yeah, yeah I... I'm not railing against this conversation because I want to see the landscape function. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, you know, we're talking, we, had, we used to have reserves theory where we thought we could put everything into a reserve. Mm. That would save nature and we could farm the rest. Doesn't work, does it? We know that doesn't work. We need to have a holistically planned landscape where we've got functionality all yeah. the way through the landscape. Yeah. Now, I would suggest we need to feed less grain and less of those other things to cattle 
I think we oh, need absolute, to 100%. absolutely stop that. Yeah, yeah. that's too dark. Don't if I can eat it, animals we could eat. Yeah, yeah if I can eat it personally, then that, I, so for me, that's where kind of that part of that is. And there's a lot more land we could do with vegetables, etc., etc., etc. But the idea of having carrying capacity, which is what you're talking about, the land delivering. Yeah, we're always on the side of being understocked, not on the side of being overstocked. And I think that's absolutely crucial to yeah. our farm business model because we've built in resilience in a slow spring or a bad winter. You know, we haven't got too many animals. Yeah. Therefore, we're not having to rush out and buy their feed in a bag. Spend money. Yeah, which is instantly for us on such a small farm, low numbers of animals, you know, 10 cows to the bull, it's not a lot. Any time I have to go to the local feed merchant, I'm losing money straight away. Yeah. I'm never going to make that back yeah. by selling Shetland steers fatter and they wouldn't taste as good anyway so why would I do that mm. um, so that's the, the cattle the sheep are a useful animal in terms of um, managing the land in a different way they do tackle scrub and bramble encroachment from our woodland edge into the pastures a little bit but mostly to be quite honest they taste amazing I do really <laughs> like eating lamb I don't want to necessarily eat anyone else's lamb and all my customers love my lamb so quite a few of my customers say oh we never buy anyone else's lamb so now I'm kind of caught in this well I always have to have a few sheep because these poor people so yeah, you know yeah. maybe someone who's listening to your, your your podcast in the South Lakes can go oh they can buy lamb Rothfuss and then I don't have to have sheep no I do like yeah, the sheep yeah, yeah. but um they there's always something to do with sheep and some people love working through the pens, dealing with lame sheep, dealing with, you know, sheep, treating them for things. I don't. I want my sheep to work. Mm -hmm. And so we've gone down the wool shedding route. So we've got sheep that shed their own fleece um, and that produce a good carcass from grass. Mm -hmm. And that's the focus for them as well. And we don't sell breeding stock because they're effectively crossbred sheep. So they're not mm -hmm. as attractive to anyone else. The goats, however, are a high-value product... They're a rare breed called Golden Guernsey. And I realised when I worked in my previous job that Golden Guernseys are ridiculously expensive. And I thought, well, hang on a minute. We've got the ideal countryside farm. We've got the ideal farm for goats yeah. because we've got all this scrub, all this bramble that we want not to encroach yeah, too yeah. much. Bags of space. And they're worth an awful lot of money. I can yeah. sell two nanny kids for the price of a heifer calf. Right, yeah, right. Okay. So yeah. we bought a few goats to test the water, and they've been they've been brilliant, absolutely brilliant. They do need shelter, so we've converted an old stock trailer into a mobile shed for them, because we don't want our goats in one little paddock. We want mm -hmm. them to move around all our pastures, mm -hmm. eat the bramble and gorse, and move on to the next one. So that's what they do, and they're a huge hit with everyone walking on the footpath. So. As, as again, we, we're always talking about this with these mixed farms, yeah. is those animals are doing different roles. Yeah, they are. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, And appealing to different consumers at the end of the day as well. So you've stacked businesses effectively. You've got a I goat so. business, a sheep business, a yeah. beef business. Yeah. And they kind of, you know, a year when maybe we have uh, a year where we've moved quite a few older cows on, we've kept a lot of our own heifers, we wouldn't have as many cattle to sell, but we'll always have roughly the same amount of sheep to sell because right. they pretty much all go into box lamb. Yeah. So, you know, that's a kind of constant in the system. And in terms of your flower-rich areas, I suppose what you're doing with the sheep is maybe doing the hokey-cokey. Are you putting them in for a bit, taking them out for a bit? They're not allowed in the wood pasture. Oh, right. So in the past, yes, you're absolutely right, they just wouldn't have stayed anywhere too long. Yeah. Um, but one of the things about the wood pasture option in countryside stewardship is it's cattle grazing only. Now, that's the source of some contention, and I can see both sides of that debate. We won't get into it now because I know you haven't got 
very many minutes left on your recorder, but um, we're a little bit frustrated because we would love to put the goats in the wood pasture because we think they'd do a good job. But, you know, that's that's the concession to having a hefty, great big hectare payment. You've mm. got to do some things you would rather not. So. And I, I also we found that, that, that actually that, as with all blanket rules, there's, it's problematic. But actually, the wood pasture system with cattle is brilliant. It's brilliant. Yeah, and it's kind of what we would do anyway. Yeah. So we're really lucky in that regard that, you know, we didn't start out with... 600 sheep and have to cut our sheep numbers massively and you know have a huge change to our system we we just thought right we can only keep the number of sheep we can move around our smaller paddocks and the bigger areas will become wood pasture and cattle only so mm. it wasn't a huge mm. leap for us so we talked about well, your pasture for life stuff and your and your part of this mentoring scheme just quickly describe that because that's been yeah, that's been great. So thanks to Farming and Protected Landscapes funding. That's the FIPL funding that people talk about. FIPL funding. So this operates in AONBs and national parks. And Pasture for Life did a very successful application in the southeast of England for a mentorship programme where more experienced farmers in terms of their um, journey down the pasture-based route, the low-input farming route, would then partner up with farmers who were maybe starting out and slightly less experienced and just not not advise them, not tell them what to do, but just listen, guide, suggest things that might work. And also what happens with that, because we started it in the north, we've got five protected landscapes now, is that all the mentees and mentors all get to know each other. So suddenly rather than being the weird farmer in the valley who's got too much grass all the time... You, you're in with a load of other weird farmers who've got a lot of grass and, and grass, yeah. you know you're all talking about what make of electric fence poles you use and all the rest of it so you know it's, it's about a bit of a support network and I know Rob who's running that program now he's brilliant from Pasture for Life he's started a couple of whatsapp groups so yeah. people can chat away at things and I think that kind of light touch support yeah. system for farmers to just it makes change easier and it Adds to the health and well-being of all this sector, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. And I think that's again you, you and you and Wall exude contented happiness. <laughs> I, lo- I love it. I love it. And see him. <laughs> You've scra- not seen him on a bad day. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Well, um, and when he scratches away at his fiddle, and you know, he's Happy content- as Larry. contented man. Um, <laughs> but that being in a community, it's a very human thing, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And I would say I've nothing but um, kind of praise is the wrong word, but I guess. Uh, gratefulness for my farming neighbours around here because we are a bit weird but I think everybody would expect us to be and we've had so much support from farmers locally and that does mean a lot yeah 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 so you're happy with where you're at and what you're doing yeah definitely I mean we're we're both people that don't like to be inside so Mm. you know what we do here is we we kind of go to work and then we come back and do it all again and we've done that for 15 years so yeah it works for us (laughs) (laughs) it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you thank you very much indeed I love the work you're doing and uh, power to your own keep going at it thank you it sounds like we're on desert island we are doesn't it (laughs) (laughs) thank you (laughs) Kirsty Ruth and Wald's farm is such a lovely space it's tucked away it's so peaceful and so quiet except of course for the birds which are everywhere it's fantastic it is one picture of the sort of farming that might represent where we were perhaps 100 years ago pockets of woodland small meadows mixed cropping with different animals it's a joy
Next week, we go to see Mike Douglas, an ecologist who's been doing a lot of monitoring for us on our schemes across Cumbria. You've been listening to the Tree Amble podcast, written and produced by myself, Pete Leeson. My special thanks go to Pete Ord for his awesome production and mixing skills. And actually, Pete and Pete, both of us, we wrote the music, so thanks very much to Pete for his input there. The recording was on location with mixing and production at the studio at Sunbeams, part of the Annie Mawson Sunbeams Music Trust. Thanks also to all those lovely people who were interviewed, Simon Wakefield for the artwork, and my special thanks go to those who gave me the confidence and support to make this happen. Angela, Anne, Catherine, Tim, Tim, Kevin, Emma, Nick and Paul. Thank you.